0: Physics world. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast, which is sponsored by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience. I'm Hamish Johnston, and I'm joined by my colleagues Margaret Harris and Mateen Durrani to talk about this year's Nobel Prizes for Physics and Chemistry. But first, a word from our sponsor... Physics World's Nobel Prize coverage is supported by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience, a leading supplier of research tools for the development of quantum technologies, advanced materials, and nanoscale devices. Visit nanoscience.oxinst.com to find out more. Hi, Margaret and Mateen. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Hamish. Hi, Hamish. Nice to see you again.
0: Now, the first week of October is normally very busy for us on Physics World, because that's when the Nobel Prize for Physics is announced. And this week has been particularly exciting, because the Chemistry Prize has a very strong connection to physics. And to top it all off, the names of the Chemistry winners were leaked several hours before the announcement was made which is very strange indeed. So we definitely have lots to talk about. Now this is a physics podcast, so let's get cracking with the physics prize, which went to Pierre Agostini, Ferenc Krauss, and Anne L'Huillier for developing experimental methods that generate attosecond pulses of light for the study of electrodynamics in matter. So, Mateen, what is an attosecond, and why are physicists interested in creating attosecond pulses?
1: Well, an attosecond, Hamish, is 10 to the minus 18 seconds. So let's think where we are. So we've got a second, we've got a millisecond, a microsecond, a nanosecond, which is 10 to the minus 9. Then you've got a picosecond, 10 to the minus 12. Femtosecond is 10 to the minus 15 and an attosecond is 10 to the minus 18 seconds so very short some people call them quintillionths of a second but we won't do that because someone i remember got very annoyed we did get in trouble for that didn't we they didn't know what that was so attosecond an and the uh, the shortened form is as attosecond so very 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 short the Nobel committee did a great analogy of why what that length of time is, and I'm going to steal this one, because uh, why not? Um, so they talked about a hummingbird, which uh, beats its wings very quickly at about 80 times a second. And to the naked eye, that just looks like a blur. But we can look at it by taking high-speed photography, and then you can see the wing beating in, um, you can slow it down enough. And the reason we want at a second pulses is to study things like the way atoms move. And an atom, the nucleus moves at about um, at femtosecond level, so 10 to the minus 15 seconds. But the way the electrons move around the atom is much quicker at a second. And so we can have at second pulses, then we can work out how electrons move around this sluggish, relatively sluggish nucleus.
0: And electrons are very important because, I mean, that's That's how we experience the world, isn't it? Almost any property that a chemical or a material has is down to its electrons. So having the ability to watch the electrons do things, um, it is revolutionary, isn't it? And it could help us understand the properties of materials or how um, things like photosynthesis work, um it I mean it really does open up a window on a on a very important world, doesn't it
1: yeah absolutely i mean that that yeah that's the reason for the nobel prize um but you know the the interesting thing is you know how on earth these were how do you make these at a second pulses and that's you know that is really what the prize was awarded for you know in the first place the fundamental research of making these at a second pulses, and uh, you know it's taken you know decades to to get there
0: i mean w- one thing that uh, i I was interested in when I when I read about the prize is is that it it sort of came out of a study of how light interacts with uh, noble gases. so, um, I think that was work that was done in the uh, in the 1980s and you sort of think well you know hold on a minute how you know zapping a, a sample of, of a noble gas with a laser how is that going to lead to uh, to creating these attosecond pulses? But it's, um, it's really interesting. I think it was Anne uh, Louillier who noticed that when you, when you zap these um, atoms, they, they, they respond in a very interesting way in that they produce lots of higher harmonics uh, of, of light. So that's light at, um, at higher frequencies or shorter wavelengths. And it turns out that to make um, uh, a very short pulse. You need a very broad spectrum of light, uh, that can be combined in a very special way. And, you know, just by noticing this in, uh, in her gas samples, she sort of opened the door to, uh, creating these, these ultra short pulses. And the other two researchers, I think, uh, Krauss and um, Agostini sort of uh, refined the technique for making these pulses and I think it was Krauss who actually used them for the first time to study how electrons are um, uh, sort of pulled away from atoms in a sample so uh, I thought it was a really nice story about you know some basic research that was done about how light interacts with matter that takes us to um, uh, a situation where uh, we've got a tool for studying um, lots of exciting properties of of chemicals and materials.
1: Yeah, because uh, Anne Louilier, she sent um, infrared light through her no- a, a pulse of infrared light through her sample of a noble gas, and um, you know you create these what are called ultraviolet harmonics, uh, these overtones that interfere to make the pulses that are much shorter than the um, than otherwise, and um, the weird thing, as you say, Hamish, you needed a very sort of broad um, spectrum of uh, bandwidth to get a very short pulse. Uh, but what Agostini did was he created a train of these pulses in the early 2000s. Um, the analogy of the Nobel Committee is like a, a, tra- a carriage of, tra- you know, train with the carriages, these pulses. What Krauss did then was to have a technique to get individual pulses out of the train. And so he took the, word, the work forward, um, so yeah, as you say, it's fascinating how you can go from shining infrared light through a Nobel gas sample to get these attosecond pulses. Um, quite incredible and yeah, fascinating stuff and richly worthy of the prize, I think.
0: And um, Anne louis is just the fifth woman to have won the Nobel physics prize. And that's out of a total of 224 laureates. So physics is clearly, physics clearly still has a long way to go when it comes to diversity and inclusion. And Margaret, you noticed a problem in how we've covered the three laureates in the pages of Physics World that suggests that, you know, perhaps we've been just as guilty as uh, the broader physics community when it comes to recognizing women.
2: Yeah, I mean, so as soon as the, the winners were announced yesterday, I mean, uh, I and other other members of the Physics World team sort of went into our archives, and we found, uh, excitingly enough, that uh, uh, Pierre Agostino had, had written an article for uh, Physics World clear back in, in 1989, I think it was, uh, about uh, this, his research into out-of-second um, science. And similarly, um, uh Terence Krauss had written, also written a story uh, for us, a feature-length story about out-of-second physics in 2001. Um, but the only times we'd sort of mentioned Anne Louis-Lier, uh prior to this week, uh, when we actually predicted she might be one of the people to win the prize, um, was firstly in 2012, we mentioned her in her capacity as a member of the Nobel Prize Committee in the year that um, a, a different set of laser physicists won the prize. And then uh, we'd also mentioned her back in I think it was two thousand two, in an article about women and women in physics. So we hadn't actually covered her research before. We covered her work as a in service as a com- committee member, and her experiences as, as a woman in physics. And I think that's you know okay. It's good that we were actually talking about her at all, but that's a pretty low bar. And the fact that we you know sort of these decisions that we made editorially. 20, even 30 years ago, have now sort of come and say, oh, actually we have, in retrospect, treated these three equally worthy people differently. Is that because of gender? Um, I don't think it was deliberately so. I wasn't here in 2001 to make these decisions. I doubt it would have been deliberately done that way. Uh, certainly we have commissioned, even at that time, other women to write about uh, about physics, including about laser physics. But uh, the fact that we seem to have overlooked and the Willier in specifically is uh is not great so i think we're reflecting on that a little bit um, and trying to to make sure that decisions we're making now that whoever is is in our post 20 years from now is not going oh that was a mistake we shouldn't have done that
0: i mean that is a i suppose a trap that that perhaps w- we fall into in the sense that when we talk to a to a male physicist w- we ask them about their research and when we'll, when we talk to a female physicist, we ask them what it's like to be a woman in physics. And I, I suppose that's something that we have to get beyond, isn't it?
2: Yeah, there was actually a, a science journalist, um, met her about sort of 10, 15 years ago now, called Anne Finkbeiner, who came up with the, the what she calls a Finkbeiner test. You know, can she, she write about a woman in physics or in astronomy, I think, uh, in her case? as if she's just a, a physicist, just an astronomer, and not mention how, oh, she's so nurturing of her students, oh, she does all sorts of wonderful teaching work, oh, she's a woman, how hard is it, what's her spouse do, these kind of things. So um, although those things are important, and it's important we talk about them because they are, you know, sort of active career barriers, um, I think uh, that Lulier herself has said that... Um, Sweden's uh, system of when people need to get tenure, when people apply for permanent jobs, is really not well set up for women who want to have children, um, basically. Or I suppose men who want to have children. Sweden's a more egalitarian place now than it used to be. Um, so these are important things, but we can't talk about them exclusively. We need to, you know, sort of make sure we're focusing on the science and I think also kind of be led by by the person. You know, if they, if they want to talk about their experience as a, a, mono, as a minority, um, as a minoritized person from an under, underrepresented group in physics, then great, we can give them the space to talk about that. But if they just want to get focused on their research, that's totally valid and we should be reflecting that.
1: I can't remember why we asked those two people. I mean, it could have been that you know we did ask the we did ask Anne Luilia and she said no because she was busy. I can't remember, and it could be that the men who won the prize were sort of willing to you know have the time on their hands to do it, or perhaps you know or perhaps we were went to them first because they were top of our mental checklist of who's involved in this field. Um, so there's all sorts of reasons, but. Hopefully, you know, we think a bit more carefully about who we ask and we don't fall into those traps that you you both have mentioned um, that perhaps we did 20 years ago.
0: And, uh, I mean, another contentious issue about the Nobel Prize is the fact that um, it can only be given to three people at the most. Um, And so, as often happens when an award is announced, people start talking about who is excluded and this year, um, there seem to be three people who have made important contributions to Atosecond Science, but didn't share the prize. Um, these are uh, Kenneth Schaefer, Paul Corkum, and Kenneth Kalander. And um, if you don't believe that they've made significant contributions to Atosecond Science, just read the, um, uh, what the, the Nobel Committee has written <laughs> about the prize this year. And those three names come up. Um, very often in the description of how um, the field emerged. Um, and, uh, I mean, Corcombe, I suppose, is an interesting case for us because we predicted that he, he would win uh, this year's prize, along with um, Kraus and uh, Louis Lier, um, because he won the Wolf Prize, which is seen as a, a pretty good indicator of who will win a future Nobel. So, Is it time for the the Nobel Foundation to get rid of the rule that just three people can share a prize? Would this make it easier for the committee to give credit where credit is due? What do you think, Margaret and Mateen?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's tempting to think, well, let's have four people or five or six. But, you know, where do you stop? And in a way, having three, it kind of forces you to, to come down and make a decision um, I mean, you could say three is better than one, or better than two. You know, three. Um, you know, it's tempting not to start fiddling around with the rules too much. You know, I'm not sure. Um, you know, if you had it, f- whether four or five, would that dilute the effect? Because you'll still have. If you had five, you'll have person six and seven complaining that they were they weren't picked. Um, so it is arbitrary, and it maybe is. Um, best to keep it that way because the Nobel committee who do their work very assiduously I should add I know you've spoken to one of the former chairmen of the physics committee Hamish in the past who has said you know they take their work very seriously they they don't judge make a decision in a you know in a in a in a snap decision they you know they think long and hard about it um and I don't know the wolf prize you know we do look to see who they pick but I I don't know, but I'm guessing they don't spend as much time as the Nobel Foundation do. You spend a whole year between sending out nominations and making the final decision. I kind of trust them to do a pretty good job.
2: I'm going to go against that and say, I mean, without wanting to to cast aspersions in the Nobel Committee, I think you're absolutely right. They do think about this very carefully. And the other thing is they are operating under some constraints. I mean, I don't know uh, Alfred Nobel's original will that set up the Nobel Prize said that there had to be just three people. Um, but that was in a very different research context and also than than is, is, is the case today. Um, and also, I think at the time, the financial aspect of the prize was meant to really sort of um, further additional research. Uh, and nowadays, you know... Yes, I'm sure the laureates will be glad to get the money and uh Ferenc Krausz has actually already said that he's going to be giving his Nobel Prize money just like he gave his Wolf Prize money to an organization that it, for scholars and school children um di- displaced in Ukraine. Um so that's you know, obviously a, a great use of the prize money but it and so that I guess would be an argument for not diluting it between lots of different people. But you know the Nobel Peace Prize can be awarded to one person or can be ordered ordered Uh, Awarded to, you know, several hundred people, depending on what the situation is. So, you know, maybe in this case, uh, awarding it to three people or four people or five people would have been fine. But a few years ago, when they made the award for the discovery of the Higgs boson, I mean, why why didn't they award that to the entire staff of the CERN detectors who'd worked on it and, and found... The Higgs boson. Why did they just have to give it to the, the three theorists who'd, uh, or two theorists, I can't remember, uh, who'd been involved in sort of predicting the particle years earlier? It would be a much fairer um, way of, of, of awarding the prize to have the prize number of people fit the science that was done. I mean, to me, you know, putting aside the considerations about Alfred Nobel's will and whether it's possible legally to do it, I think... Scientifically, intellectually, there's there's no case to answer in terms of keeping it to just this three people.
0: Yeah, I I I I I think you're well. I, I definitely agree with you, Margaret. There, and, and I put that question to Lars Brink. That's the uh, he 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 actually headed the 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 Nobel Prize selection committee the year that um the the Higgs Prize was given, and and he said to me, well, you know, the reason why we didn't give it to CMS and Atlas the two uh, uh, CERN collaborations, is that we didn't want to have thousands of people calling themselves physics Nobel laureates. Um, I mean, okay, I can see that point. But then I thought, well, hold on. Isn't that isn't that maybe a bit selfish <laughs> with regards to the prize? You know, they're so, um, you know, they, they don't want to let the prize go in a sense. You know, they want it to be very exclusive. They want to keep the... Uh, I suppose that exclusivity. Well, I, there. I can
1: understand that Hamish. They've got their brand. It's a brand, isn't it? You know, and they they don't. Oh, they, that's it. A brand. They don't yeah. want to dilute it. And yeah. It's like you know the World Cup in football. You know, it used to be sixteen teams, and then it was twenty four, and then it was thirty two, and now it's forty eight. And you know, where do you stop, job it? It's seventy two. You know, there is kind of a cachet of having exclu- the exclusive club. Um, so I think I think keep it at three because um, you don't want you, you know se- you know if you had several thousand. Uh, Detective physicists all claiming they were nobel prize winners well you know you know where, where do you stop 3000 4000 uh, and then you've got the cachet of the next year's award winners you know it's all sort of watered down so yeah i think i think keep it to three
0: yeah it's i mean i, I, I do find it funny because sometimes uh, you know i will be introduced to uh, a physicist and the, you know the, uh, they'll be introduced as a um, as a as a nobel laureate <laughs> And I'll think, well, hold on. I've, I, I, I thought I knew most of the Nobel laureates, so I, and then of course I realized that they were a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and rightly so. You know, every every member of that panel is a,
2: um, Nobel, a Nobel, Peace Nobel Prize laureate. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, Peace Prize laureate. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, it uh, it's it, it, it's a tough one. I mean, I think, you know, the, I think one of the things is that if the Nobel Prize didn't have all these weird rules and things, we probably wouldn't be talking about it today. You know, it would be just another prize. Um, so maybe I've got a bit of sympathy for
1: I, I mean, you don't want it watered down. You can imagine them expanding out their prizes. You've got the Nobel Prize for something else or You know sorry to talk about a rival publisher but you know nature have sort of kept their brand nature by spinning off into nature physics nature chemistry i mean what do you want a nobel all sorts of subcategories of prize the the junior (laughs) nobel prize you know do you want that i mean maybe they should think about that you know
2: on that basis there should be just one nobel prize per year (laughs) Mm. well yeah for for science (laughs) maybe you know
0: yeah yeah that's true yeah Ah oh well well I don't I don't think the three person rule is um is going to change anytime soon. So now let's move on to the chemistry prize, which went to Mungi Bawendi, Lewis Bruce, and Alexei Ikimov for the discovery and synthesis of quantum dots. So Margaret, you're our quantum expert. What is a quantum dot?
2: Well, Quantum dots are these nanometer scale crystals um, that contain anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand atoms. And they were initially made from inorganic semiconductor materials such as cadmium selenide, though they can also be made from silicon and, more recently, from graphene. So the common thread here is that these semiconductor structures confine electrons and holes in in all three spatial dimensions, And this makes them actually behave like atoms in some ways, even though they actually contain hundreds to thousands of atoms. And specifically, the band gaps between their electron energy levels are such that these quantum dots can absorb and emit light only at these discrete quantized wavelengths. So, for example, if you shine a beam of ultraviolet light on a quantum dot, it gets excited to a higher energy state... And when it subsequently drops back down to its ground state, the electron-hole pairs will re-emit that light at a narrow range of frequencies, or even a single frequency of visible light. And the fun thing is that if you can work out how to make quantum dots that are a consistent size, which is what the new chemistry lords did, or one of them did, then you can actually change what wavelength of light they emit. So, for example, a cadmium selenide quantum dot that's three nanometers in diameter, that will radiate green light at 520 nanometers. But if you then add a few more layers to the quantum dot, so that it's five and a half nanometers in diameter, um, and it's just the same material, still cadmium selenide, then that will radiate red light at 630 nanometers, which is a fantastically useful process.
0: And I think this was illustrated, wasn't it, um, during, the press re- uh, during the press conference uh, for the prize announcement. Did they have uh, sort of beakers full of quantum dots that were yeah. all different colors
2: yeah they did It was a nice little visual aid there in the in the press conference
0: so there's a lot of physics in there margaret but there was also a lot of chemistry so what did the the new laureates do i'm guessing it was a bit of both
2: well it's interesting because on some level the 2023 physics prize went for using physics to make a better tool for studying chemistry so the behavior of electrons is all all what chemistry is really um and these out 2nd laser pulses, as Mateen said, lets you monitor what electrons are doing in unprecedented detail. But then the 2023 Chemistry Prize went for chemically synthesizing a material that lets you do some really exciting physics. So what the laureates did um, is that, you know, basically you can win a Nobel Prize in a couple of ways. The first way is to be the, the first person to do something important. And the second way is to do that important thing significantly better than whoever did it first. So in this case, it was Alexei Akimov who was the first to make quantum dots. And he did did that back in the early 1980s when he observed size-dependent quantum effects in colored glass. And the color came from nanoparticles made of copper chloride. And Akimov demonstrated that quantum effects related to these nanoparticle size would affect the color of the glass. The problem was that these nanoparticles were, in effect, they were frozen in the glass. You couldn't, do anything with them other than say, ooh, look, that's exciting. Um, and during the Nobel Prize announcement this morning, one of the committee members, uh, Johann Akfist, he was very clear on this point. And he said, for quantum dots become really useful, you needed to make them in solution with exquisite control over their size and surface. And a few years later, that's what Louis Spruce decided, decided to do. He synthesized quantum dots in particles that were floating freely in a fluid, a colloidal solution, as it's called. And he also did some important theoretical work to explain and predict other quantum size effects other than light emission, because the size of these nanoparticles doesn't only affect what color of light they emit, it also affects, you know, how good they are as catalysts in chemical reactions and several other properties. And then finally, in 1993, uh, Mungi Bawendi really got things going by finding a way to synthesize these little quantum dots in a controlled way, resulting in nearly perfect dots of whatever size is needed for particular applications. So in short, Akimov did it first, Bruce did it early and a little bit better, and Buwendi did it later, but much better.
0: The, the thing I really love about the, this prize for quantum dots, and I, th- I think you summed it up really nicely, the, the whole idea is is so simple. You know, the, 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 the dots get bigger and the, the, the color of the light, they emit changes, you know it must be so deceptively simple now that we know how to make them yes um, i think you know, that's the, the incredible key. amount of work that that went into it so so margaret now that we've got these quantum dots what 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 can they be used for because they are actually am i right in thinking that they're actually being used in things that you might be able to buy
2: oh yeah so the fact you can get the same material to produce such different wavelengths of light is great for imaging It's used in LED lighting, and it's also used in electronic displays, such as high-end television screens. So yeah, you can totally go out and buy something that's got quantum dots in it, um, if you have enough money. Uh, And those are some of the most advanced applications in a commercial sense. Um, The LED lighting aspect is interesting because you probably remember, many of our listeners will remember, that when LED lights first came out as commercial products, they weren't widely used in domestic lighting because the light they produced had kind of a harsh quality. It wasn't sort of cozy. And that's mostly been fixed by adding a phosphor coating to blue LEDs. But phosphors are very inefficient converters of blue light into red. So we're starting to see quantum dots, which are much more efficient at making this conversion, taking the place of phosphors. And that's a sort of an emerging application. There are also applications in in medical imaging, and there probably will be more in the future because there's been a lot of work done over the past 15 years or so to make quantum dots... Uh, that are green in the environmental sense, as well as in the sort of glowing at 520 nanometers sense. So manufacturing these tiny semiconductor structures requires both high temperatures and very toxic solvents. And of course, some of the materials in the quantum dots themselves, such as cadmium and lead, are also toxic. So there's been a drive to make quantum dots that are more environmentally friendly, not just for environmental reasons, but because it aids biological applications. So if you make quantum dots out of graphene, which is just carbon... Um, that's non-toxic. And a, that's not toxic, and a lot of biological applications do use graphene quantum dots precisely for that reason. Um, and they're, they're used in several different ways. Um, they've been recently used to enhance Cherenkov imaging and radiotherapy, and somewhat more bizarrely, they've they've been proposed as treatments for ulcerative colitis and Parkinson's disease. Although that research is very much still at a preclinical stage.
0: And Margaret, the name quantum suggests that there might be some applications in quantum science and technology. Is that right? Or is that, uh, am I barking up the wrong tree there?
2: No, you're on the right track, definitely. Because, um, so I mentioned that that quantum dots behave like atoms in some ways with these discrete energy levels. Well, guess what? That means you can make qubits out of them. All you need for a qubit is a two-level quantum system, right? So there are researchers out there working on making quantum dots into spin qubits in silicon, and I think a few other materials besides. Uh, Another quantum application would be as single photon emitters, which are fantastically useful devices in optical computing and quantum communications, except nobody has yet worked out an absolutely definitive way of making one that works miles better than its rivals. There's several different systems for it, but nothing has really sort of emerged as the, the champion technology. And a major drawback for quantum dots as single photon emitters is that they tend to blink randomly, which is fine for a lot of applications, but it's not great for single photon emitters. You really want to, if you need a single photon, you need to be able to sort of push a button and say, hey, there it is. Um, But just last year in 2022, Physics World reported on some work done by actually by Mungi Bawendi and his group that might make quantum dot emissions more controllable. So it's a very much an active field of research, including by the the laureates themselves.
0: And as our listeners can probably tell, we love quantum dots. Here at Physics World, and we've actually published 245 articles about them on the on the website. Um, that's I think we've only published about 50 articles about addosecond science, and I, I think some of those articles are, are there's some pretty quirky applications uh, for quantum dots. Could you give us a taste of some of the the strangest uh, uses for quantum dots that researchers have come up with, Margaret?
2: Well, one of the more unusual applications for quantum dots we've reported on over the years involves using quantum dots as an indicator to monitor to, to using quantum dots as an indicator to monitor the way that limestone buildings kind of deteriorate with weathering. Uh, the idea is if you put quantum dots in a lime consolidant, which is a material used to sort of make limestone stick together better. You can shine UV light on the buildings, and the glow of the quantum dots will tell you where the consolidant has penetrated and where it hasn't. So you can sort of monitor how well your fixes are working. And then if that wasn't enough, it turns out you can use carbon quantum dots as an indicator to tell when fish has spoiled. And you do this by coating the dots with a compound called NAC, which is in itself coated, I assume for chemical reasons, with a peptide molecule called HISP3, or HISP3. And the presence of this HISP3 molecules redu- reduces the amount of light that the quantum dots emit because of an effect called fluorescence quenching. But, the th- here's a key, HISP3 bonds much more strongly to histamine than it does to Ni- NAC. So if there's histamine around, like in spoiled fish, then that histamine will actually remove the HISP3 from the quantum dots, which means they'll start to shine brightly again. So if, you're, if your HISP3 uh, detector is glowing, your quantum dot-, dot detector is glowing when you're near these... Um, this is fish, then there's no no good news. You you don't want to eat that fish. It's got loads of histamines in it, and it might make you sick.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember that story. I think I edited it, and I had a lot mm. of fun looking for... uh, Initially, I was looking for pictures of fish that had gone off, but I thought, (laughs) no, I better not not use that. So I think there's some fresh fish uh, that I use to illustrate the I don't really uh, fancy
1: spreading that on my fish and then eating it. What's the idea? You actually have a pot of this stuff and...
2: Oh, I think it might be sort of like a, a sensor nearby, oh, okay. rather than something you actually spread on it. And anyway, it's carbon quantum dots. You know, it's it's uh, it's just just ordinary carbon. Fine.
1: <laughs> I think I'm going to use my Better... nose for the time being.
2: <laughs> All right. <laughs>
0: So something that was really surprising this week, I think it was a real shock for regular Nobel watchers like us, is that the winners of the chemistry prize were leaked several hours before the official announcement was made. And, you know, I think I've been watching the Nobel uh, prize announcement for about 20 years now, and I've never seen anything like that. It, It was really extraordinary, wasn't it?
1: I mean, they never put a foot wrong. We you know we've, um, you know, watched those uh, live press events for quite a few years now. It's great that they're all broadcast in real time. On YouTube and on the Nobel Prize website, and it's normally a really meticulous affair, which is sort of you never have any clue in advance what's going on. So it was yeah, it was really weird. You spotted it, Margaret, didn't you? On uh, yeah, on Twitter and Reuters, the Guardian, really- I think, reported it uh, that they, yeah. the, the three Nobel laureates and it was the correct people were correctly leaked, if you like, um, a couple of hours beforehand, um, which is really weird because I know Hamish, you've talked to well, you mentioned talking to Lars Brink, head of the former head of the Nobel Physics Committee. And, you know, they have a absolutely uh, watertight system, we thought, uh, about picking their Nobel Prize winner, which goes on for about – well, it actually starts a year before the prize is announced with the sort of nomination forms are sent out. And then there's the – they get about – out of about 3,000 forms, they get about 400 come back, and then they winner that down to 20. And then they have a big meeting in June where they kind of pick who they should – and they want to give it to, and then they write reports, and then it goes to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, and on the day, you know, they decide with a final vote that, yes, those are the people we want to give it to. So The whole year is sort of shrouded in secrecy, but, I mean, I suppose it's surprising there isn't more leakage, you know, the number of people that are involved, the number of experts that are consulted. You'd think somewhere along the line there might be something get, yeah. gets out, so... Um, you know, it was quite funny that it leaked. We thought it was quite unusual. But, you know, I'm surprised in a way it hasn't happened before.
0: Mm. And I, I, I don't think we I mean, we. I suppose we know that the names were linked are uh, leaked. I don't I don't th- I don't know if there's any more details about what was leaked, because, you know, there is there's a huge amount of material that's produced. Um, uh to make the decision and I suppose it is possible that large amounts of material have been leaked and uh, you know we only know about the uh, about the names so far so I mean hopefully that hasn't happened um, I think that would be a shame for the for the Nobel committee but um, I suppose it is a possibility
2: it was leaked to a Swedish newspaper so if any Swedish new listeners know more about the situation than we do uh, please please write in and let us know
0: I mean, one really interesting and extraordinary thing about the prize that we learned during the press release, uh, during the press conference, is that the final decision on who wins is actually made in the morning. So Hans uh, Elegren, who's Secretary General of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, said that the, the actual decision hadn't been made when the leak went out i suppose it went out in the middle of the night um, european time so it, it, it's incredible to think that um, the decision is only made a few hours before the announcement uh, but i think
1: that they've decided in june and what really only happens on the day is that they give a final approval to that um the people that they've picked. And so really, the choice is between, do you want to give it to these people or not, and have no prize and overrule it. But generally, the final nomination is the, the, the one that has been agreed on in June is the one that's, yes, it may be voted on, but it's pretty much been decided. And it's only a case of, do we want these people or do we want no one, rather than there being sort of three big folders. And they're
0: yeah, that, that's right. I, yeah, it, I, I think it is a well rubber stamping. That's that's maybe a bit flippant, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's right. The, the 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 committee actually makes its decision in June. Sorry, it makes its recommendation to the academy in June, and then um, and then the, there's a vote taken. And, and I think it, when I spoke to Lars Brink a few years ago, um, he said that it. it, it it's very rare that um, that the academy actually sticks its oar in, and and makes a change, or um, uh, you know, sort of denies the committee its choice. But um, yeah, it, it, it j- just an interesting, um, just an uh, it's it, it's a very interesting process. And uh, I'll, um, I'll after we've had this discussion, I'll um, I'll mention to listeners where they can read. Uh, my article where I interviewed Lars Brink, because um, it, it it is exhaustive, the amount of, uh, uh, of of information and the number of reports and experts who are drawn in to decide who wins the Nobel Prize. So in a way, yeah, it was very surprising that somebody managed to uh, to get some of this information out. But
1: we still don't know how it happened. It was somebody walking around with a giant sort of folder with names written on in sort of fluorescent ink uh, fluorescent highlighter and sort of uh you know <laughs> mm. it was photographed by somebody I'm trying to, I'm intrigued or maybe it was just an email I
2: suspect I suspect someone pushed the wrong button on email <sighs> you know I think it was not going to be anything more interesting than that and I think the only reason we're talking about it is it's never happened before and I think that's probably the more surprising thing than it happening this time
0: Yeah yeah you know I suppose you can think about hackers and people breaking in etc but normally it's uh it's just some sort of human error, isn't it? Somebody on the on the going home on the Stockholm subway, uh re- reading a report or something. I mean, thankfully and, uh, it went to the people somebody that, taking a picture.
1: Thankfully it went to those people rather than, you know, they sort of got their hopes up and then it was somebody yeah. else. <laughs> it's
2: not, it's not like it's not like the reading out the wrong Oscar Oscar winners and then suddenly, oh no no, actually you didn't win an Oscar. Yeah, yeah. you which uh, has it happens. goes to someone else, <laughs> which has happened. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so all, all, all's well that ends well with the, uh, with the Chemistry Nobel Prize. And, of course, we were very pleased because um, there's lots of physics in it. So thanks, Margaret and Mateen. Thanks for coming on and, uh, and talking about this year's Nobel Prizes. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience thanks to Margaret Harris and Mateen Durrani for a fascinating chat about this year's Nobel Prizes. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But in the meantime, there's lots to read in Physics World about this year's Nobel Prizes. And a great place to begin is the news section of the website. And if you're interested in learning more about the process behind choosing prize winners, check out my feature article called Inside the Nobels, Lars Brink Reveals How the World's Top Physics Prize is Awarded. And you can also find that on the Physics World website. Physics World's Nobel Prize coverage is supported by Oxford Instruments Nanoscience, a leading supplier of research tools for the development of quantum technologies, advanced materials, and nanoscale devices. Visit nanoscience.oxinst.com to find out more. Physics World